Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Brumley. I'm here with George Weigel and J.D. Flynn. We're here to talk about the next pope. We'll find out who that is. No, we won't, but we'll find out what his agenda is in just a moment. I want to encourage you to post comments, ask questions on Facebook. Uh, we will try to get to your questions as we can. My uh, guest today, George Weigel, is George Weigel. Many of you know he is the New York Times best-selling author. Uh, he's a distinguished senior fellow at the Washington at Washington's Ethics and Public Policy Center, where he holds the William E. Simon Chair in Catholic Studies. I say he's a New York Times bestseller. He's a best-selling author. He's written uh, the definitive biography of John Paul II, Witness to Hope and the End of the Beginning, and several other books. So, what is it, some 20 or so, George? 27 at last count, Mark. 27. We're here to talk about his book today, The Next Pope. And I also have with me uh, Mr. J.D. Flynn. J.D. is many things, uh, including the editor-in-chief of the Catholic News Agency. He's a canon lawyer, a fellow of the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology in Berkeley, California, a place I'm very familiar with. Uh, a few years ago, he was a student of George Weigel as part of Mr. Weigel's Tertio Millennia seminars. So. George, we brought a student of yours, a former student of yours, to help grill you. I'd like to begin by asking, what in the world are you doing, Mr. Weigel? Here's a book about the next pope written and published during the time of a current pope, Pope Francis, while his predecessor, Benedict XVI, is still alive, by a layman, Many people will say, isn't that rather presumptuous? Tell us about it, George. Well, it's certainly uh, something new in the history of the church that uh, we have a pope and a pope emeritus uh, alive at the same time. But there's absolutely nothing new about uh, people writing about the future of the papacy uh, and the future of the church. Uh, these books, books similar to this, uh, were being written 15 years before the death of John Paul II. Uh, I can't recall exactly, but I'm sure some were being written during the time of Benedict XVI. As for why I'm doing this, um, I've had a rather unique experience over the past uh, 35 years or so. I have personally known John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis. I've had extensive conversations with each of these men, uh, for which I'm very grateful. And in that same period, I have been in conversation with uh, a very considerable range of Catholics around the world, living in every imaginable cultural circumstance. Uh, and I think I've learned some things from that. Uh, I think the church has learned some things from these, from the current pontificate and its two predecessors. And it seemed to me time to reflect upon what we've learned uh, and to suggest uh, what the papacy needs to be going forward if the church is to realize the great promise of the new evangelization, uh, a great promise which was, was in fact the point uh, of the Second Vatican Council. So this, this book is a bit of a summary 
of what I've learned and I hope the church has learned uh, over the past several decades. It's an agenda for the future. I'm not handicapping the next conclave. In fact, there's no discussion of the next conclave uh, in this book, but I hope I'm offering every Catholic an opportunity to reflect upon what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church at this moment in history. Well, from my perspective, if I were to, to pick anybody on the planet uh, that I would like to see write a book like this, a sort of um, experience-based proposal of an agenda for the next pope, you'd be the guy. So I'm happy that Ignatius Press has gotten to publish this book. J.D., uh, you've been a longtime observer of church and state and many things, including Mr. Weigel. Let's let you join in the conversation here. Well, really, any Mark, thanks. Any observer of church and state in uh, in the U.S. owes a owes a debt of gratitude to to uh, George because you have sort of set the blueprint for that, and um, you know your work with uh, with uh, Witness to Hope and all the things that have come after have probably set in some ways the template for what. Uh, lay uh, involvement in the life of the church and lay expertise on the life of the church can look like. And uh, and, and so that gives you, I, I think, as Mark says, exactly, um, really a unique place from which to write this book. Um, I must admit, when I picked it up, a book called The Next Pope by George Weigel, I, I, by George Weigel, I really thought it would be a book of prognostication and odds making, and I thought it would be helpful for me in my own, you know, next pope betting pools that inevitably <laughs> will will arise. Um, but it wasn't that. It was a it was a discernment. It seemed to me, um, and a discernment sort of predicated on these questions you ask in your introduction: What has the Holy Spirit been teaching the Church in transition, and what are the qualities needed in the man who will lead the Church through um, through an ongoing transition? Uh, what what George is your own sort of key to discernment about those questions? Uh, J.D., um, as you and, and Mark know, I have been writing for some years now that we are in a period of transition in, in Catholic history uh, that is quite uh, remarkable because it's one of only five such transitions in the history of the Church. Uh, the Church is the same over time because it's the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism. But the mode of being Catholic or the way of being Catholic, the self-understanding of the church develops over time to meet the demands of the great commission of Matthew 28, go out and make disciples of all nations. The transition we're in is the transition from the church in which I grew up, the church of the counter-reformation, to the church of the new evangelization, the church in which every Catholic is being called to be a missionary disciple, in which every venue, beginning with your kitchen table and your neighborhood and your parish, is mission territory, and uh, a period in which every institution in the church must measure itself by mission effectiveness. Why is that? It's because the culture no longer transmits the faith. When I was a boy growing up in Baltimore in the 1950s, uh, the culture helped our parents, our teachers, our priests and sisters transmit the faith. That is not the case today. Uh, the culture is, if anything, antithetical to the faith. It sends out all sorts of counter gospel signals. So the faith has to be actively proposed. There's no more what someone called recently heritage Catholicism. 
what I call Catholicism by osmosis or ethnic, uh, ethnic descent. I mean, you look what's happened in Ireland, Quebec, Spain, Portugal, similar places over the recent uh, over recent decades, and 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 you see you see the you see the point. Uh, so that's that's the big discernment I think uh, that all of us are called uh, to make. The the other one. Um, which has become clearer and clearer to me, at least in recent years, is that um, for all the vast diversity of the Catholic Church, 1.3 billion people all over the world, uh, there is a single uh, template for reading the signs of this time. And that is that where the gospel is embraced as true, where the gospel is proclaimed as true, where friendship with Jesus Christ is offered, where the catechism is embraced as a whole, where, where people are living all in Catholicism. The church can not only survive, the church can flourish. And where the church is moribund or dying, or in fact, virtually dead, it's because people are still trying to make the failed project of Catholic light, uh, the fucking of the borders, the boundaries of, of doctrine and, and practice. Catholic light just doesn't work, and it doesn't work because it's boring. That's something we all need to know, and it's something that papacy needs to remind the church of going forward so that we don't waste time, waste evangelical time, and pastoral approaches which have shown themselves to be colossal failures. One of the things you point out with regard to that is, um, is that that, George, that, go ahead, Mark. I was going to say, George, um, somebody might say, well, this is, I mean, isn't all of this like self-evident, you know, isn't it self-evident that the church should be doing these things? Isn't it self-evident that we should look to places where the church is thriving as opposed to looking to places where the church is declining? Um, won't that happen automatically, that the, the next candidate for the papacy will be thinking about these things? Well, I hope so. Uh, I hope everyone in the church is thinking about these things. But when you look at the extraordinary uh, influence of, say, the German church on the special synod for Amazonia, last uh, October, October of 2019, uh, you do have to wonder. Um, the church in Germany is in very, very sad shape right now. Uh, the parish I was living in for about a week in Munich, in Bavaria, one of the historically most Catholic parts of Germany, um, has 10,000 people. Uh, in the parish, 10,000 people pay the church tax in that parish, and 200 come to mass on Two percent uh, mass attendance. Um, this is catastrophe, and yet the church in Germany is very wealthy uh, because of that church tax. Uh, is quite generous to the third world, but manifestly, last October in Rome was trying to impose its model of Catholic light. Uh, on the world church. So, uh, no, not everyone has, has learned these lessons. Uh, you still hear calls throughout Western Europe for even lighter Catholic light. 
and you know to continue this slightly odd but i think useful soft drink analogy um catholic light leads to catholic zero uh, it leads to a church without evangelical fervor and frankly without social impact the you know the claim in germany is that by coming becoming more catholic light the church becomes more relevant. Well, that, that's just simply false. The, the Catholic Church has no serious impact on German public life today. Uh, the places where the church does have an impact is measured, for example, by the impact of the pro-life movement uh, in the United States. Uh, it's because the gospel has been embraced in full. So no, I mean, the short answer is not everybody's gotten the message. George, one of the points you make about that is to say, uh, you, you talk about the Pope's responsibility as a sort of um, a, a sort of catalyst for other things, for other people to get things done, for other people to take up their responsibilities. You say the Pope's responsibilities include doing everything he can to encourage others to fulfill their responsibilities, witnesses to the gospel. And when I read that, I thought about someone who I don't think will be Pope, but I, I thought about our mutual friend, Archbishop Charles Chaput, who has you know done a lot of work to sort of catalyze the apostolic initiatives of other people. Um, how, how does that work at the level of the universal church? How could the Pope do that? Well, in, in the next Pope, I discuss both the upside and downside of what some, some have called papal protagonism, mm -hmm. uh, the yeah. notion that all initiative in the church begins with, with the Pope. Um, the first thing to recognize is that historically, this is something quite new. Uh, at the time of the American founding, I'm willing to bet a fair amount that 90% of the 30,000 some Catholics in the 13 colonies had no idea who the Pope was. If you would ask them who's the Pope, they just wouldn't have automatically said, oh, obviously it's Pope Pius VI. Uh, the Pope only became an integral part of every Catholic's imagination beginning in the mid 19th century with Pius IX. And the papacy has, is now looming larger in, in Catholic self-understanding and the Catholic imagination than ever. There are some upsides to this. This helped popes move things forward. Uh, Pius X, for example, completely reconfigured the spiritual landscape of Catholicism by admitting seven-year-olds to Holy Communion and, and did that for the entire church by an active of papal initiative. Pius XII prepared the intellectual ground for the Second Vatican Council with several crucial encyclicals in the mid-1940s. John Paul II's extraordinary role in the collapse of European communism and in giving an authoritative interpretation to Vatican II are two uh, examples of, of really effective papal protagonism. On the other hand, if everyone thinks, well, the Pope will take care of it, or Rome will settle the issue, that can be a kind of incentive to irresponsibility at the local level. Uh, this has got to stop. Uh, the Second Vatican Council made clear, for example, that local bishops are not branch managers of Catholic Church, Inc., simply executing the orders of, of the CEO in Rome. Every validly ordained 
bishop in communion with the Bishop of Rome, who's the ordinary of a diocese, is a vicar of Christ in his diocese. And he can't be punting the hard decisions to Rome, nor can he leave it to the Pope to energize his people for Christian mission. So uh, I think all popes try to encourage everyone in the church to be the missionary disciples they were, they were baptized to be. But I think that needs to be a bit more intentional going forward. Uh, the pope needs to make clear to the bishops that he expects them to exercise evangelical leadership. The Pope needs to remind lay Catholics that they don't need anyone's permission to be the missionary disciples they were baptized to be, although they should certainly undertake that work in, in uh, coordination with the pastors of the church. Uh, so I think perhaps a little lessening of, of the profile of the papacy uh, is, is in order. This is going to be tough to do in a media environment where, you, you know, you've got this one large-scale figure and everybody can focus on that. Um, but the Pope is not all there is to the Catholic Church. And a lot of people are unaware of all of the good things going on in the Church today, for example, because they're so obsessed uh, with the papacy and what the Pope did or didn't say or did or didn't do. This is just not a completely clarifying prism through which to view the things, well, well, which to view the church, excuse me. Let's talk about that view of the church in large part because I think we all need some good news right now, and you have a unique perch from which to see some. You, you talk about, I, I love this vision of all-in Catholicism, um, and you talk about seeing all-in Catholicism as characteristic as some of the places where the church is growing both in, in parts of the world like Sub-Saharan Africa, but also here in, in the United States, in North America, and even in Europe. And I think so many of us so often right now are only seeing the challenges the church faces. Where are the places that you see kind of growth, especially catalyzed by all-in Catholicism? I think Catholic parish life in the United States, uh, while it certainly faces enormous challenges, it is going to face a lot more as we come out of this uh, COVID-19 shutdown, is, is arguably the most vibrant parish life uh, in, in the Catholic Western world. Uh, there's an awful lot of good stuff going on in, in parishes today. I think we're in something of a golden age of Catholic campus ministry in the United States today. Uh, you look at something like the Catholic campus ministry at Texas A&M University, which has produced, by the way, more priestly and religious vocations than Notre Dame over the past 25 years. You look at some of the initiatives underway uh, at the University of Nebraska. Uh, you look at FOCUS, the Fellowship of Catholic University Students, which is now on well over 125 uh, campuses around not only the United States, but now, now the world. Uh, this is an expression of all-in Catholicism. I think the most dramatic example of this is in uh, communities of religious women. Uh, the communities of religious women that have lived the reform vision of the Second Vatican Council, uh, as interpreted by John Paul II, uh, who 
live a life of, of common prayer, who wear a distinctive religious habit, who exercise distinctively Catholic and evangelical uh, missions uh, in the church and in the world, these groups are growing. Uh, it's the communities that embrace the kind of Catholic light religious life uh, that are dying, um, including, I regret to report, uh, the, the, several of the communities of religious women who, who essentially raised me uh, along, along with my parents. Um, I think the same is true in those sprouts of life you see busting up through the hard secular soil of Western Europe. Uh, the growing parts of the church there are, are the all-in Catholic ones. I, I, I mentioned being in Germany uh, just about a year ago. There's an extraordinary um, renaissance of Catholic radio uh, in Germany right now, which is, you know, mirrors what's going on here in, in the United States. And I was very impressed by the quality, the intelligence of the people involved in this, their fundraising capacity, which is quite uh, uh, extraordinary, um, and the fact that they are providing outside this massive institutional framework of German Catholicism. Uh, what people are clearly looking for, yeah. which is the truth and so. George, there's a um, there, there's a there's a vein of uh, you know there have been some other books lately about the, the the future of the papacy and looking forward to the papacy and there's a sort of vein of criticism that says well a book like that is a, is an implicit indictment of of the Holy Father is that your in intention how would you respond to that those criticisms No, I don't think so. I mean, I think the Church has things to learn both positively and critically from certainly every Pope of, of my lifetime, uh, which you know goes back to Pius XII. Um, the notion that any uh, criticism of questioning of this or that papal pronouncement or uh, action uh, is somehow a disloyal act is just false. Uh, this is ultramontanism run riot. The Pope is not above the church. The Pope is not above the gospel. Uh, the Pope deserves, as I say at the end of this book, the support and prayer uh, of the entire Catholic world because the Pope is trying to do a humanly impossible job and therefore he deserves our, our prayerful support. Uh, but I did not hear this um, well, you're, you're being disloyal to the papacy stuff from our friends on the Catholic left when they spent 25 years hammering John Paul II or seven years hammering Benedict XVI. I mean, th this liberal Catholic or progressive Catholic ultramodernism is one of the truly bizarre features of, of the present moment. And it's Pope Francis himself who said, let's have a real discussion. I mean, it's just... Um, it's just unworthy of serious people not to engage arguments, but rather to engage in, in you know, personal attacks. That, that just doesn't work. My longstanding position after 30 years in the Catholic colonizing business is I just don't respond to personal attacks. Let's talk about that disunity, because one of the things you mentioned is the importance of the Pope as a, as an, as a unifier in the church. 
And there is, I mean, there is, as you rightly point out, there is division in the church. How can, um, how can the church be more unified and how can the papacy be an instrument of that? Well, this is not an easy question, J.D., as, as you and Mark know, because in addition to being a unifier, the Pope has to be a clarifier. Right. And uh, I do think that, and I say this in the next book, that um, going forward, the office of Peter is going to have to make it clear that some things that are going on in some parts of the church are frankly forms of apostasy. They are an abandonment of the faith once delivered to the saints, and they need to be described as that precisely in order to call these local churches that seem to be flirting and more than flirting with apostasy uh, to genuine conversion uh, to Christ and to a genuine embrace of, of Catholicism in uh, full. The single most urgent question at all moments in Catholic history is the question the Lord himself posed in the gospel. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? Part of the very burdensome job of the papacy uh, is to call the parts of the church that seem to be uh, weakening in that faith to the fullness of Catholic faith. Looks like we have a question here. Uh, and can you see that on your screen, George? I can. Um, uh, yeah, uh, commenting on the charismatic communities broadly defined. A lot of the energy, for example, in the church in Western Europe is coming from outside the institutional boundaries of the church. Uh, I think this is particularly true in France, although it, it seems to be true in, in Germany as well. Uh, lay renewal movements have been, and new Catholic communities have been uh, a major contributor to the vitality of the church over the past 30 or 40 years. Uh, you know, there's always some chafing here uh, because fitting these movements and communities into the institutional life of the church has never been easy. Uh, it's never been easy going back to <laughs> Paul's letters to the Corinthians. There's nothing new about that. Um, but the fact that life is evident uh, outside the institutional uh, formalities of, of the church is, is, I believe, a sign of the Holy Spirit. And John Paul II certainly believed that with his gathering of, of uh, lay renewal movements and new Catholic communities uh, in Rome uh, on Pentecost on a very memorable occasion, which I believe there were half a million people in, in St. Peter's Square. George, I want to ask you about uh, this uh, you, contrast. You, you discuss your book. On the one hand, you have a, a sort of all-in vital Catholicism. Um, on the other hand, you have Catholic light and in some places tending towards Catholic zero, as you put it. But there's another um, group that you, you refer to. You don't go into as much detail on this regarding this group, but it's there nonetheless. And that is a, a, a church of, of uh, counter-reformation Catholicism. 
So I, you know, one thing you could say is that the driving force of your book seems to be how we transition into this church of the new evangelization. Um, and you seem to think that the Second Vatican Council is a key aspect of that. Much, much that you say in the book is an exposition of how Vatican II applies and the, how the, the next pope needs to make sure that he continues to apply Vatican II. That seems to be in tension now with this kind of resurgence of, of what you call uh, Counter-Reformation Catholicism. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, look, the Counter-Reformation was uh, an absolutely essential movement of the Holy Spirit in, in the Church uh, at, at the time, in the 16th century. And it was a it was a great movement of evangelical fervor. I mean, this was the this was the form of Catholicism that brought the gospel to the Western Hemisphere, and that can never be uh, forgotten. Uh, my argument, going back to the book Evangelical Catholicism, and then continued in the book The Irony of Modern Catholic History, is that this transition from that way of being Catholic to the new evangelization way of being Catholic actually begins with Pope Leo XIII, doesn't begin with the Second Vatican Council, continues through the 20th century, is accelerated by Vatican II. It's not a condemnation of the, of the Counter-Reformation, but it is a recognition that you cannot fossilize the way of being Catholic at one point in history. Counter-Reformation itself grew out of medieval Christendom, which grew out of patristic Catholicism which grew out of the early church, uh, which grew out of the New Testament church. This is a constant process in, in Catholic history. Um, uh, and these transitions are always moments of some turbulence. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we're living through a turbulent period in Catholic history. But to imagine, for example, that you could freeze frame the Catholic Church in 1950, and that that was the given form of the church over all time and would be for all time, is simply, uh, first of all, false historically. Uh, the church of 1950 is very different from the church in which Bonaventure and Thomas Aquinas lived in the parish of the, in the Paris of the uh, 13th century. And to imagine that you could freeze that in amber and that it would continue in a vital way into the 21st century is falsified by looking at several places which tried to do that, which I named a moment ago, Quebec, Ireland, Spain, Portugal, it didn't work. And in fact, when those cultures were finally hit by the tsunami of the modern and the postmodern world, things crumbled for the Catholic Church. So um, I'm a great fan of the Counter-Reformation in its historical moment. Uh, I'm grateful for all that it did in building institutional Catholicism in the United States. Uh, but those institutions now have to be transformed into platforms for mission. Uh, they can't simply become bunkers in which we hide, because as we've been reminded by recent Supreme Court decisions, we're not going to be allowed to hide. Uh, we have to get out and engage. 
and you, you know, there's this balance between preserving the patrimony of the church's history, preserving the, the, the things which he has and the, the apostolates which he's undertaken, you know, in, in this country and around the world. And then, as you say, this transformation to ensuring that those things are um, are platforms for the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, ha, have you have you seen the successful sort of um, reimagination of Catholic apostolates in some places for the, the sake of the new evangelization? Sure. I mean, we talked about some of those uh, a moment ago, these uh, vibrant campus ministries and often very curious places. I mean, who who would have imagined 50 years ago that in, in the heart of the Bible Belt, uh, on a campus that's only 25% Catholic, you would have the most vital, vibrant Catholic campus ministry in the country, I'm talking about Texas A&M. I mean, that, that's an extraordinary sign to everyone. Why, why did it work down there? It worked because you had three campus ministers in a row, two of whom are now bishops, who, who offered all-in Catholicism to students who were manifestly yearning for something more than, than Catholic white or, or the vagaries of, of the postmodern. Uh, I think of my friend, Father Scott Newman's parish, St. Mary's in Greenville, South Carolina. I think it's the model Catholic parish uh, in the United States. Um, it's, a, uh, it's an engine of evangelization. It's an engine of religious and priestly vocations. It celebrates magnificent uh, liturgy. Um, uh, the Archdiocese of Denver, uh, has been for some time, uh, I think, a model of a new evangelization diocese um, that was a direct result of, of World Youth Day in 1993. And many of the initiatives we see now centered in Denver, like Focus, we talked about that before, like the Augustine Institute, uh, are direct outgrowths of the experience of, of World Youth Day in so there's a lot of stuff to uh, to point to uh, that is uh, well one more thing uh, there are some extraordinarily fine small Catholic liberal arts colleges and universities around the country that that offer a first-class education and that embody uh, all in Catholicism uh, and as parents look to the future, and parents reflect upon the utter corruption of, say, Ivy League higher education that's been exposed over the last several months, it should have been clear to people before, but it ought to be unmistakably clear now, uh, how these uh, places have become uh, simply uh, playpens of, of a vicious form of political correctness. Look to the University of Dallas, look to Benedictine College in Kansas, look to Christendom College, uh, look to the University of Mary in, uh, in North Dakota, uh, look at Thomas Aquinas South, uh, in Southern California. I mean, there are a dozen of these fine places that are preparing missionary disciples for the future. And by that, I don't mean simply church workers. I mean people who will go into business, who will go into politics, who will go into the world of, of culture, who will go into the professions, and who may yet help save the United States uh, by returning it to its founding ideals. Mm -hmm.
Well, George, uh, we are uh, just past our 30-minute mark here, so we're going to uh, wrap it up. I wish we could spend the whole morning you know, or whole afternoon in, in, on the East Coast there, but unfortunately we can't. Thank you for spending time with us. Thank you, J.D. Flynn, for spending time with us talking about your book, The Next Pope. We hope everybody goes out and reads it. Most importantly, we hope the members of the College of Cardinals read it. Um, I was joking with you early at one point saying, you know, this is the kind of book that uh, Jorge Bergoglio might have said, I wish I had had going into the last conclave. So uh, we appreciate your taking the time to be with us and to, to write on this topic. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, George. Great to talk with you. Thanks, J.D. Best to the family. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, Thanks for listening.